Well, good evening. My name is Sam Toman. I'm the youth intern here at Pear Orchard, and I want to begin just by um, thanking the session for allowing me to preach God's word this evening. Um, we're approaching the end of our time together in the book of 2 Peter. So please take out your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, tonight we're going to be in verses 11 through 14. And here, Peter is continuing to talk about the eschatological day of the Lord, and he will provide us with some practical insights on what this future day means for the present Christian. And so let's give attention to the reading of God's word found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. Peter writes, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we ask that you'd be with um, this preaching of your word this evening, Lord, we thank you that you've given us your holy scriptures. Um, and we ask that um, our worship tonight would be pleasing to you. And I ask that you would speak through this message this evening to your people, um, that you would shepherd tonight. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. What you believe is coming shapes how you act now. What you believe is coming shapes how you act now. My grandma is a wonderful woman, and she is someone I would characterize as a true servant. Uh, she has a joyful heart, and she also loves being prepared. She loves being prepared so that she can give good gifts. And whenever she invites you over, you can just about always expect there to be a little meat and cheese tray on her kitchen counter, just waiting for you to snack on as you enter the door. Uh, my, my grandma loves to be prepared. And my grandma's son, uh, my uncle, lives in eastern Pennsylvania, which is about a seven-hour or so drive from where I'm from and where my grandma lives up in Ohio. Uh, and for all my uncle's adult life, he's lived far away from home. And so whenever my uncle would plan a visit to come see his parents, uh, my grandma would start getting beds ready in the house for all of my cousins to come and sleep. And she would go to the grocery store to make sure she had everyone's favorite foods. And she, would call, she calls the rest of us who live nearby so that we can coordinate a dinner. And perhaps most importantly, she would prepare my uncle's favorite chocolate chip cookies. However, recently, my uncle has planned several surprise visits to come and see my grandma. And now my grandma absolutely loves these visits, but she also loves to be prepared. And so I love the way she describes these visits when he comes. She's like, oh, I'm so happy that you're here, but if I would have known, I would have made you your chocolate chip cookies. See, what you believe is coming shapes how you act now. And see, my uncle was coming to visit whether or not my grandma knew it, but had she known he was coming, you better believe the cookies would have, been, uh, would have been out cooling as soon as he walked into the door. As Christians, our eschatology matters. And eschatology is simply the study of last things. That is, eschatology is the study of what we believe is coming. And what you believe is coming shapes 
how you act. Since Christ's ascension into heaven after his resurrection, believers have been waiting for his second coming. And we've been waiting for him to come back again. And we've been waiting for what Peter calls the day of God or the day of the Lord. See, earlier in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter addresses the question, why hasn't Jesus returned yet? Is he really coming? And Pastor Caleb explained to us that, yes, Jesus is coming back, but what seems to us to be the slowness of the Lord is simply the gracious patience of our God. And so, Christian, the apostles have taught us that Jesus may come at any moment, and that moment is quickly approaching. And so the question must be asked, are you truly living like you believe that he could come back at any moment? If Christ may return even tonight, and I pray that he does, then we must wait with anticipation. But this is not the type of waiting that sits around mindlessly scrolling at our phones like we all do. No, this is the type of waiting that is anticipatory, that is actively waiting on the Lord. See, Peter teaches us that Christ has called you to actively wait for him to return. Christ has called you to actively wait for him to return. And first, you must wait for him by living Christ-like lives. Second, you must wait for him by sharing the gospel of repentance and forgiveness. And third, you must wait for him by hoping in Christ's promise. First, you must wait for him by living Christ-like lives. If you glance down at verses 11, through 11 and 14, Peter kind of bookends this passage with this same message. Um, he's telling us quite plainly by repeating this that you need to pay attention to what he is saying. He's essentially asking and answering his own question. If you know that Christ is coming back at any moment, then, then how should you act? And look how verse 10 leads directly into verse 11. Listen to what it says. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will burn up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? There are all sorts of questions that I have about Peter's description here, and there's a wide variety of end times views, but Peter doesn't concern himself much with the logistical nature of these events here. Instead, he describes these events in such a way that it likely evokes your imagination, and it should provoke your heart to Christ-likeness. Peter isn't all too interested in telling us the exact supernatural process that will take place through this creation being dissolved. Instead, he says, know that it certainly will be dissolved, that it could happen at any moment, and so above all, be prepared for it to happen. And he doesn't say prepare by stockpiling resources or hunkering down and hiding, just waiting for it. Many of us, especially those of us who live within uh, the city of Jackson Limits knows what it means to be gathering resources and waiting to see how something turns out. But Peter isn't merely telling us that some sort of disaster is coming. No, for God's elect, for believers, the destruction of this world means that our master is coming. And he's coming to save us, and he's coming to expose the works of the world. Ver verse 14, as we see here, says to be diligent to be found by him and to look just like him. See, Jesus alone is perfectly spotless, perfectly blameless. 
And he's looking for his servants, for his children, to look like him when he arrives. He wants us to be at peace with one another. Christ-like people interacting with each other, pursuing holiness and godliness. Jesus himself, in Luke chapter 12, gives a parable to the disciples to describe this so they may understand it. So turn with me to Luke chapter 12 briefly. It's the section beginning in verse 35. Jesus begins to describe servants who have been told to wait for their master to come home to them. But the master didn't tell them exactly what time he was coming back, just that he was, in fact, coming back. And see, those servants are waiting, and they're waiting for their master, and it would be easy to become tired and to fall asleep or to do those things which the master may not approve of. Look at verse 37 of Luke chapter 12. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. When this master returns, he will come and serve them. Keep that in the back of your mind as we jump down to verse 43. It says, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. Jesus speaks plainly in this parable. He says, you, my servants, know what I expect of you. Obey me and I will return and will serve you and disobey me. You will be punished along with the rest of the world. Now in 2 Peter 3 verse 11, Peter says that we know the end is coming. We know that this master will return because he's promised us that he will. And so we must do the will of our master. Christian, you ought to be a person of holiness, setting yourself apart from that which is evil. And you ought to be a person of godliness, dedicating yourself to do that which is good. You ought to look like your master, as verse 14 says, without spot or blemish, and you ought to live at peace with one another, not being someone who abuses your fellow servant, or in other words, not having great strife and disagreements with fellow believers, but be at peace. And so the obvious question is this. If Jesus were to return this very second, bring the destruction of this age and expose all your works, what would he find you doing? Maybe you look at your life right now and you need to admit that if Christ returned today, he would see your hidden addiction and your ungodliness would be evident. Or he would see you glaring at your fellow church member, the one you're supposed to be serving with, and your lack of peace would be evident. And unless you think that you lack any grand sinful behavior, ask yourself, would he find you idle, lazy, and avoiding the work that he has commanded you to do? Listen to what J.C. Ryle in his book entitled Holiness says about this concept. He says, A holy man will follow after a spirit of mercy and benevolence towards others. He will not stand all the day idle. He will not be content with doing no harm. He will try to do good. 
He will strive to be useful in his day and generation and to lessen, lessen the spiritual wants and misery around him as far as he can. Yes, Peter tells us that as believers, we are intended to wait for the return of Christ, but we're not waiting for him to jolt us from our sleep. We're waiting for him by doing the work that he has commanded us to do and the work that he will come and complete. We do this by pursuing holiness and godliness and peace. Christ has called you to actively wait for him to return, and you must wait for him by living Christ-like lives. And now, out of an abundance of that holiness, verse 12 says, in verse 12, we learn that you must wait for him by sharing the gospel of repentance and forgiveness. You must wait for him by sharing the gospel of repentance and forgiveness. Verse 12 says, uh, out of an abundance of this holiness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. In our time, apocalyptic movies and literature are quite popular, and it shaped pictures of what we may believe the end will look like. But Peter gives an amazing and awe-inspiring description here. The heavens are on fire, and the heavenly bodies are melting as they burn. And now, as the description implies, for those of this world, this will be unpleasant and horrific. But for those of us who are in Christ, we can read this terrible description with a sense of peace. Because as we'll talk about soon, Christ has specific promises for the believer that ought to comfort us in the midst of this coming destruction. And so, because we know that this purifying fire that will come is purposeful, and that it's for our good, and that it's certain, our master tells us to both wait for it and hasten it. See, this waiting's not passive. It's an anticipatory waiting that causes us to aim to hasten it. And to hasten it simply means that we're commanded to help it come more quickly. Peter, earlier in chapter 3, responded to those Christians who are weary of waiting for Christ to return and to end their suffering here on earth. And they desperately wanted Christ to come back and finish the work that he began at the cross by making this world a place of perfect peace. And so we ask, but Peter, I'm just a man. How, how can I possibly contribute to the hastening of the day of God? And I believe verse 9 helps us find that answer. Look back in verse 9 as we looked at a few weeks ago. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Our God is a gracious and merciful God, and he doesn't want us to perish alongside the world. And that is why Jesus and his apostles so clearly preached the message of the gospel. And this message is exactly what verse 9 is talking about, one of repentance and forgiveness. Matthew 4, 17 says this, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the message that Jesus preached while he was on earth. And we see his apostles preaching this same message. Peter himself in Acts chapter 2 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The message of the gospel is clear. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will redeem you 
and sanctify you and forgive you and save you from your sins. And this repentance is not a work of ours, but it's given to us by the Holy Spirit. But for people to repent, someone must tell them the message of the gospel. And God is patiently allowing that message to spread. Listen to what, he, to what the gospel says in Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. God is patiently ordaining that the message of the gospel spread throughout the world before he sends Jesus back to us. And we must quickly spread this message because a great judgment on men is surely coming soon. This is what Peter tells us. And although we we live in the Bible belt, that does not mean that everyone we encounter is converted. Far from it. I think many of us have the eyes to see the wickedness of the world, and we ourselves want to avoid being polluted by it. But I'm also concerned that our way of preventing ourselves and our children from being corrupted by the world is by putting up a fence around ourselves rather than reaching the corrupted parts of the world and the corrupted parts of our communities with the gospel. I think too many of us treat the message of the gospel like something that needs to simply be protected rather than something that must be used to save. If, if your neighbor's house was burning, I hope that you wouldn't just go and turn on your sprinklers in your yard to try to prevent the fire from entering your property. No, hopefully we'd realize that if we use our hoses and our resources, then maybe we can save their house and our house. See, we're distressed by the sin and the destruction in the present world, and we want Jesus to come back and make things right, and amen. But are we presently using the tool of the gospel of repentance and forgiveness to quench the wickedness that continues to threaten us, to save the world from the destruction that Christ will certainly bring? Or are we just hoping that Jesus hurries up so so we don't have to do anything about it? We must proclaim this message in order to hasten his coming in which he will complete the work. Christ has called you to actively wait for him to return and you must wait for him by sharing the gospel of repentance and forgiveness. Thirdly, you must wait for him by hoping in Christ's promise. You must wait for him by hoping in Christ's promise. Look at verse 13. Peter writes, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Throughout chapter 3, Peter has referred to the promise that Jesus will come back. But now, Peter makes it explicit that the promise includes not only the destruction of the present creation, but that he will bring a new heavens and a new earth. And this is a promise that we see all throughout the Old Testament and the prophets. They've been, we've been waiting for the Lord to come back and make right what was wronged in the Garden of Eden. The Word of God teaches us that our present beautiful creation testifies to the Creator. But this beautiful creation is also deeply stained by the mark of sin. The world is filled with death and sickness and war. And we, we've prayed about these things already tonight. The suffering in Ukraine, the death happening in Pakistan. We long for these things to come to an end. And when we see the present sufferings on, on earth, both our own and others, it can be easy to become weary. Perhaps like those who Peter was writing to may have felt. 
That is why Peter tells believers to hope in the promise of Christ, because we're not just waiting to see if things might come to an end. Hoping in the promise of Christ reminds us that these things will come to an end. But not only that, he will bring his elect into the land in which righteousness dwells. The prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 60, uh, talking about this future time. Isaiah 60 verses 19 through 22 says, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. See, the the prophet describes a wonderful scene here. This new place in which righteousness dwells will be nothing like we've ever experienced because the Lord, Yahweh himself, will be our light. Did you catch what he said in that final verse? I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. And so, yes, it's true that the Lord has called us to hasten the day of God through the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. But ultimately, we are told to hope in the promise of God, because it is Yahweh himself who will hasten the day of God and bring about the new heavens and the new earth. Peter describes this as a place in which righteousness dwells, and ultimately, that's because the righteous one will dwell there. Revelation 21, verse 3, it's a beautiful description, and you've heard it before. Listen to what it says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. At the beginning, we said that what you believe determines how you live now. Do we believe that our future is to dwell with God? This doctrine can seem so theoretical at times, but Peter says that this is what we've been waiting for for all these years. We're not waiting for the world to accept our message. We're not waiting for conflicts to end. We're not waiting for a man-made utopia. We're waiting to be with God and to be in the place in which righteousness dwells. When our hope is not centered wholly on these promises of Christ, it makes it more difficult to live Christ-like lives. It makes it more difficult to accomplish our mission of evangelism. Maybe you make every effort to treat your spouse with dignity and to serve them each day, and yet sometimes it just feels like no matter how much you pursue godliness and peace, a conflict and displeasure is always around the corner. Or maybe you keep knocking on your neighbor's doors and you're trying to seek opportunities to share your faith, but for whatever reason, it seems like more often than not, your conversations don't go in the direction you're hoping for. Christian, Christ will reward your godliness and your faithfulness to evangelize, and oftentimes even here on earth. But the world is still broken, and we can't control the responses of others. So instead, our motivation must primarily be that Christ has commanded us to do these things, 
and to find our hope in his promises. In his promises that say, he will come back, he will reward you, and he will make a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You must wait for him by hoping in Christ's promise. So Peter teaches us that Christ has called you to actively wait for him to return. First, you must wait for him by living Christ-like lives. Second, you must wait for him by sharing the gospel of repentance and forgiveness. And third, you must wait for him by hoping in Christ's promise. Our church's confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, speaks beautifully about the certain coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 33, paragraph 3. Listen closely to what it says. As Christ would have us to be both certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know at w- not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen. May we be prepared for his return so that tonight we may cry out with the saints throughout time, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Father God, that is our prayer to you tonight that you would send your son, that Jesus may come back quickly. And God, we ask that you would prepare our hearts for the coming of your son, that you would make us men and women who pursue godliness, who who look more and more like your son by the power of your spirit. And God, that we may go out into our communities to evangelize, to reach the lost, and to bring this message throughout the world. God, we just thank you that we have this opportunity to worship you, to hear your word, and we thank you that you are certainly sending your son back. And so we wait with hopeful anticipation. We cannot wait to see you face to face and to be in the place where you, our righteous one, our all-powerful God, our all-holy God, the place where you dwell. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your love. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.